This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with John Davis of Superdrag and the Lees of Memory. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 215, 215, season five. How are you in this evening? I'm doing great. Excellent. I'm glad you're in good spirits because this is our, uh, well, this was supposed to be our Britpop interview, Mm -hmm. but uh, we decided to forego that because we had a... Um, opportunity to talk to someone this evening for our interview for our February episode that uh, I think you and I probably, had we thought about it ahead of time, had we been on our game when we reviewed the Super Drag Regretful Yours episode um, Mm -hmm. album, we would have maybe reached out ahead of time, but we're not always on our game thinking (laughs) that we should think about these things beforehand. But luckily, we reviewed that episode, or reviewed that album, and um, we got some feedback from the one and only Mr. John Davis, the lead singer and guitar player and songwriter and man from Superdrag. He, he gave us some insight on that review. So we decided just to have him on the show and talk about everything he's ever done. Um, <laughs> so joining us from a much warmer climate than I'm in, um, Mr. John Davis. John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So... I mentioned that we reviewed that record and I need to apologize in person because I believe I said during that review that I didn't, I didn't get the record when I first got it back in the nineties. Um, I think I was a little behind the curve on a lot of things. I think I, I also, there was a couple of records Jay that over the years that we've reviewed where I didn't like them back in the nineties. And now I have a great appreciation for them. And, and this was one of them. So uh, that's my, that was my bad. Um, luckily, <laughs> luckily, my radio station manager disagreed with me, and he still played the record regardless. Well, I didn't like it either, so <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but you have a new record out. Well, it's it's been a couple months now, but it's with a new band. It's the Lees of Memory, and the new album is called Sisyphus Says, which is a hard thing to say, actually. Sisyphus Says. Um, yeah. Before we go backwards, can you talk a little bit about how Lee's came together and um, how this album came together? Yeah, man. Um, we kind of did the whole thing backwards, which is kind of strange because we're just now kind of putting all the pieces in place to go and play our first live shows. You know, normally you play 40 or 50, you know, poorly attended live shows before you go and make a record kind of thing. Um, right. But we ended up, um, I say we, I mean myself and Brandon Fisher, um, also played in Super Drag, but he's the other guitar player and singer and writer in the memory. He had a, a bunch of songs written that he wanted to start making demos of. And, you know, I have a little setup here at the house with a, with a four track and a, you know, a drum kit always set up, and, and they hesitate to call it a studio because it's <laughs> nothing compared to what most people think of as a home studio. But it's just the way I've always liked to record, and I'm resistant to change in, in many ways. So I just, you know, I have a four track cassette, an SM58, 
a bunch of instruments. And, but he doesn't really have a setup like that at his house, and he's not really a drummer, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing really started with him and his his new music that he was writing. And he came down one weekend and brought his family, and everybody stayed and hung out and kids played. And we worked on this one song called Della Quest, which ended up on the record. about six months of 
these sort of like weekend guerrilla sessions to get the records worth of material finished and mixed and mastered and everything. So then we we had this finished record, but still, you know, we didn't really have a clear idea of what we wanted to do about it. We didn't really want to press it up ourselves and like run a label. I just, I just don't have time to, to do that really, uh, or don't really have that passion to run a label and like keep absolute control of everything. I just, you know, all I really care about is writing and, and recording. You know, at least certainly at that point in time, nothing else, none of the other elements of the whole thing really interested me all that much. But, you know, to kind of bring, bring things back to the discussion, like when Sidle and Dummy reissued that Super Drag stuff, you know, I think that was probably maybe around the time that you guys reviewed your breakfast years, I'm not sure. Um, you know, they did the first one. And then I had been talking to them about the second go-around with, like, the, the Head Trip and Every Key vinyl and also that Jokers and Traces thing, which is, like, our demos for Head Trip and Every Key. So I had been dealing with them on a, on a regular basis, um, way more so that second go-around and stuff, because I wasn't really involved with the, the first record so much. Um, but they were just so, so cool and easy to deal with, and it was just kind of fun, and then they sent me uh, the test pressing of Head Trip, and I listened to, listened to all four sides, which I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that entire thing, I don't know, 10, probably more than 10 years, you know, and I just really enjoyed it, I kind of like forgot, it had been so long, I kind of forgot that I wasn't supposed to enjoy listening to it, or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and I just thought, man, this is how I want people to enjoy the Lee's record. Like the same, same passion behind it and the same attention to detail and the same, you know, quality. So I just kind of on a whim sent him a SoundCloud link to the, the record sequence. And then I think they, they hit me back that same day, you know, wanted to, wanted to talk about it and wanted to put it out. So. That's pretty much how it happened. So when you got together with with Brandon that first time for that first song, were you playing drums or were you playing guitar? You know, I didn't even play it. I played a 12-string. I overdubbed the 12-string on the outro, but I didn't play any guitar other than that. We did all the the piece of guitar and all the electric guitar, and I just kind of added a rhythm section you know, I played bass and drums, and all, I did all the synth and sampler. And we've done a couple of them that way where, you know, I ha- there's been a couple of them that I, I haven't added much guitar at all to. Man, he, I mean, he just has such a huge sound. You know, he always, <laughs> he's uh, definitely one of my favorite guitar players. And it's always a joy to, like, get in a room with that dude with a bunch of Jaguars and Jazzmasters and Mm-hmm. You know, something cool always happens. Well, I saw that you had posted some pictures of. I, I, I'm assuming it was you or, or my, somebody who was from um, Side One Dummy. If, I don't know who runs the Lee's um, Facebook page, but they posted some pictures of guitars and then also some pedal setups. And um, uh-huh. I'm it, so there was one that was running. I think it was like running two 
MXR distortions at the same time, which I had not yeah. seen before. Is that your setup or yeah. is it Brandon's? That's mine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've all, almost pretty much from day one. Like, I've just always loved. It's a really, uh, I guess, it's kind of overkill in a way, but it you get to, you get some really nice overtones for whatever reason when you run. And I don't necessarily always run them both wide open, you know. Uh, it's kind of a sweet spot, but. Yeah, Is it, uh, are you trying to replicate the record or because of this, um, it was so studio based, is it kind of, uh, thinking about taking it to a new place in terms of the sound live? Man, I mean, we, there's a lot of acoustic on the record. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily dominate ever. Uh, but it's, it's just such a cool layer with all those overdriven guitars and we really wanted to present that and so the the third guitar player is our friend Ethan Luck who he can pretty, pretty much put him anywhere on the stage and he kills it um, but he's doing all the acoustics some electric he's covering like the lap steel stuff or he's kind of replicating the pedal steel parts of lap steel and, so yeah just a, a lot of the overdubby kind of things that we couldn't do was just a four piece band, you know. Mm-hmm. And we have somebody there to do all the synthesizer and, and sampler and organ and piano and percussion. The one guy's kind of doing all that, which is why we ended up with six dudes. But yeah, the first time we got together and went through everything, like we we couldn't be more pleased with how it sounds. So I'm excited to actually. You know, try it in public. Wow, that sounds amazing. If you want to rewind and kind of start from the beginning and, and uh, talk about, uh, you know, what, when, what was your sort of family? Was, was music big in your family or, or how did it just all start for you? When did you sort of realize that um, you were interested in music? Well, 
Oh, man. Uh, almost as far back as I can remember, really. I think by the time I was in third grade, I was completely obsessed. Mm. I mean, for, for life, you know, from that day to this. And we had... My mom and dad both played instruments. I mean, more so, I think, before I came along or when I was really small. Um, my dad played banjo. Still can, but I don't think he practices very much or anything. And my, my mom could, could play guitar, I think, probably by ear, you know. And um, my grandmother lived with us from the time I was in first grade until I moved out of the house. And she played piano, and actually, the piano that I learned on when I was a little kid taking lessons, like, I have, that's the one I have now. And uh, pretty much any four-track recording of mine that has piano on it, that same one. Um, wow. But yeah, so, you know, was, and they were, they were music fans. I mean, they, my, my parents had a decent record collection, and there was always music around and they definitely I was kind of forced to take piano lessons when I was a small kid which now I'm glad I did but at the time I really wasn't super into it like <laughs> I remember dreading it a lot mm-hmm. you know but then you know like I was saying by, by the time I was in about third grade like that you know that that was like the first wave of MTV kind of thing with MTV first one on the air not long before that, and uh, I was hooked. I mean, I used to watch videos at, at every available opportunity. And the first record that I bought, the first LP that I remember buying was um, 1999, A Prince Revolution. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah that's, that's a good one. I remember I'm, buying that I'm, myself. My memo took me to Kmart so I could go buy it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is so much better yeah, than mine. That that was one of the early ones I bought too, but I bought it on cassette, not on vinyl. And man, I mean, how, how great is it still? It's like yeah. still futuristic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. But then, let's see, a couple of years after that, um, and I always wanted a guitar, you know? I always thought guitar was it, but like, it was a couple of years there of just strictly air guitaring uh, for the <laughs> most part. But then... But I don't think I really started bugging my parents to get me a guitar until I heard Zeppelin IV. And for whatever reason, when I heard Zeppelin IV, that, that it became, <clears throat> it was like an emergency. I had to get a guitar. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was like right before my 11th birthday is when I, I got my first guitar. And it was an electric. It wasn't a, you know, conventionalism being, you know, you have to have an acoustic guitar first. Why do you want to do that? Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was definitely dating myself, but it's coming up on 30 years I've been playing. Do you remember what that guitar was? Yeah, man, it was a uh, PVT-15. Okay. A Mississippi Mustang. <laughs> I really, I really wish I still had it. I'm super bummed that I don't have it. I don't. Do you remember what the amp was? It was a PV amp, not a bandit. Just can't, I can, can never remember what it, what it was. It wasn't a deuce, and it wasn't a bandit. 
I should probably do some Googling and see if I can fix you something will jog my memory. But it was, yeah, it was like a solid state CD. I think it was like a 112. That's all I can remember. But how long did it take it, for you to figure out how to make distortion? Oh, dude, it took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I was, probably, I was fascinated uh, by it. Yeah, about a year, at least a year. I was playing just a totally clean, solid state amp. Like, why yeah. does it just sound like that before? I have no idea. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then, so uh, how did you? How did you figure it out? Just trial and error. Yeah, well, I think it was just. I don't know. I, I ended up uh, somebody that my, my friend that I played with. He had an amp that had saturation, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh. Man, that that was like a, you know a watershed moment, and then I I don't know started hanging around the music store I guess and figured out you know you could buy a pedal yeah like all all that stuff I mean it's, you know when you're like 11, 12 years old you don't know that stuff <laughs> unless yeah. you, especially if you're you know you're not you don't have a teacher or you know anybody really that you know hardly that's into playing. It's funny how long it takes to figure out some of that stuff. Yeah. I had a friend that we were learning together through the same sort of what you're talking about scenario. And we would have conversations about trying to figure it out. Like, why doesn't our guitar sound like, you know, poison or whoever it is trying to make it sound like, like, I don't get it. What do we have to do here? And then one of us finally figured it out. And it was like, oh, oh, there's this whole other world we didn't know existed. Yeah, man, I, I ended up with the, um, Boss heavy metal. That was the distortion pedal I got. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Went right to the crunchy stuff. Yeah, it was it was nice, man. It, it changed everything for me. And you played? Uh, did you play drums as a as a kid, or when did when did that start? Man, that was probably by the time I was in like ninth and ninth and tenth grade. I had a friend that lived in my neighborhood who was a skateboarder also and we would skate all day every day and we'd get tired of skating we would go inside and play music and we made up like half a dozen little stupid bands all with different songs um but i ended up playing drums mostly just by default you know because he had access to a kit it was his brother-in-law's it was a super nice, like, vintage slinger one kit. We had no idea how wow. nice it was. Um, but, yeah, so probably from the time I was about 14, 15, I played drums in bands. And that was kind of how I ended up playing with Brandon and Tom. Because um, Brandon went out with my cousin. That's how I met him. And we were at some kind of family get-together, probably someone's birthday or something, and uh, we had this, this, this four-track demo of the used, which obviously this was before the other used. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that, was, that was their band. And up until that point, I had, I had this kind of fantasy of, like, starting a band, and I knew what the imaginary band was supposed to sound like. Like I wanted to do 
kind of a mixture of the Beatles and Dinosaur Jr. in my mind, you know? Yeah. Then I saw a teenage fan club on Saturday Night Live, and I was like, wait, these dudes already have the imaginary band. <laughs> like, they, they, they're <laughs> doing that, you know? Yeah. Um, but nobody or, nobody in the area was really into that kind of music. You know, this was 90, 91, 92. It was a lot of, like, Rage Against the Machine type bands or, like, Alice in Chains type bands. You know, no, mm-hmm. no disrespect to those bands, but it was just a totally different approach. But Brandon was playing me four track demos, and I was like, yeah, man, we, we had gigs that lined up, but our drummer quit, so we need to find somebody to fill in. And I, without missing a beat, I was like, I'll do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to play. So I wanted, you know, I wanted to join a band. And uh, besides that, I mean, their, their music was awesome. It was way more, you know, it was a punk rock band, way more kind of New York Dolls, like Heartbreakers, Ramones, Stooges, like that kind of 70s punk uh, aesthetic, you know. Mm-hmm. But they were great. And uh, so I, my first gig was on Halloween night, and that was in 1992. I played for those dudes, I played drums for those dudes for about six months, give or take, maybe six, seven months. And then in the meantime, I ended up meeting Don Poppy Jr. and Mike Smithers, who ended up being the 30 Fuse guy. And they were trying to start a different band, and they needed a bass player, which was kind of like one step closer to, you know, what I wanted to try, which was, you know, should play guitar and write my own stuff and all that kind of thing. So for a while, Don was doing both. He was playing in both bands. Then he got kicked out of both bands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. Um, because I think he threatened to beat up both the bands at one time <laughs> or another. Everybody in the band? But pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, Don's a tough guy, man. So, you know, I guess they took him seriously. So then it ended up just being me and Don in the basement kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and that's how Super Drag started. And, you know, Brandon was my homie, obviously. Like, he was like family to me. And I really wanted to play music with him. So he jumped on bass, although he wasn't a bass player per se, you know, I don't know that he had ever played bass before, but he jumped on bass for a while. We were a trio, like our, our first show was as a trio. We made a little demo, which some of that stuff ended up coming out on that um, four track rock double disc thing. And then, you know, sooner or later, Tom kind of wandered downstairs, like after work kind of thing and jam with us. At first, on second guitar, and that's kind of cool. But then, when Brandon and Tom switched places, that's that's when it really clicked, and we started kind of figuring out what what our sound was. So, when did you start uh, songwriting and singing? Where does how does that layer into this? Um, I mean, I think probably the. The very first like songwriting efforts 
I was probably about 15 years old. And they weren't very good. Mm-hmm. It probably took a couple of years. Like, there's one song that Super Drag Day called Plan Away, which I I wrote that, I think, at age 17. That was That was in the tank for a while. Did your friends know you were sort of, you know, in your bedroom working, singing, writing, and and uh, or did they sort of were they surprised when you started to form Super Drag? And at that point, I, I would think your songwriting was pretty well developed, right? Well, I mean, I didn't. To be honest, man, during that era, like I didn't really have that many friends that I hung out with. Yeah, I, I kind of hung out by myself a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had jobs, like I always had jobs and, and worked a lot. You know, really, when I started playing with Brandon and them, those were really kind of the first opportunities for me to play any of that stuff for anybody. Right. And I ended up writing one song that he used did. And that was the first, that was the first time I wrote something and it ended up on a record. We made a little split single. That was that was pretty rad, even though I was out of the band by the time it came out. But yeah, I don't know, like, you know, most of the, I kind of lost contact with most of the people that I was hanging out with in high school. Like, I didn't really, there was only like two, three people that I really kept in touch with when I started at UT, and that didn't last very long. I really, I really didn't have any business up there. I didn't know what I was trying to do, really. Mm-hmm. Kind of half-assed trying to get a fine arts degree, which might have been cool to have, you know. Probably about as lucrative as playing in a band. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. How can I, how can I, how can my financial destiny be less assured? Oh, I'll paint instead of <laughs> So can you take us through the, the formation of Superdrag and then how you end up signing with Elektra? Um, I know there was some releases in between, but what, how does that process go down exactly? Because there's obviously the '90s were a heyday of bands, you know, on little labels, then moving to majors, and a lot of bands um, that we're fans of were on Electra. So I'm curious how that process happened. Man, it was 
really, in retrospect, I mean, we, we weren't even a band for two years from the time we played our first show until we signed, which seems ludicrous, you know, to think about now. But at the time, it just kind of seemed like a, the next logical step, you know. We, of course, this is all pre, pre-internet, you know, pre-everything. So we started booking our own tours. I say we, really, it was Brandon and Tom, as I recall. They, those guys were really proactive, you know, and, and hardworking when it came to all that. Because, I mean, you know, it's a hassle now. You can imagine, well, you guys, you know, you guys probably did, did the same. I mean, uh, yeah. Tons of, tons of phone calls, you know, tons of, you know, unanswered phone calls, <laughs> you know, trying to hook up shows. You know, we, um, we only ever sent out one demo, as far as I know. And it was the one I sent to the guy at Dollar Records. And the only reason I did that is because I bought the Grifters 7-inch that he put out, and I really liked it. And there was a little blurb on the insert that said, send in tapes of your group with two O's, which <laughs> was obviously, this was obviously a Stereolab reference, and I love Stereolab. And that's, that's really why I did it. So I, wow. I sent him a bunch of four-track stuff, and he actually wrote me back and was really stoked on it, which, you know, I mean, I, we were shocked. Couldn't believe it. Um, and I figured, I never figured we'd hear, hear from him again. But, yeah, he, so he, he, wanted us, he wanted to hear more. He wanted us to record. um ended up recording with Nick on 8-track, and that was our first little cassette called Stereo 360 Sound, and those were the songs that ended up on the Darla records. In the the midst of all that going on and that that whole process kind of rolling, he offered to book us a show in San Francisco, which is where he was at, and another show in L.A. And so we went and played for, for nothing. Like, we... That's how green we were at the time. We didn't know that driving across country and back to play two shows for no money was kind of a harebrained idea, but we didn't care. Like, we were just stoked. And uh, so that was kind of like our first tour, I guess. And then when that when that first single came out, CMJ added one of the songs to their little monthly compilation thing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that's I think that helped us a ton. I think uh, that was when we started playing more and more of these like showcase type shows. Like we come up to New York and play at Brownies. Um, we did that a bunch, um, you know. And just through Brandon, mostly Brandon's efforts of kind of networking with other bands and stuff. You know, we hit DC or hit Philly on the way there and back, kind of thing. And we just kept doing that and doing that, and it seemed like every time we would go and come back, there'd be two or three messages on the answering machine from, you know, A&R people. And we probably talked to maybe a dozen different record companies. How we ended up at at Electra, you know, besides just, that seemed to be like the biggest platform 
out of everybody that we talked to. And, and I swear this is true. It's like you trusted them because they had stereo lab. <laughs> and all and also because they signed the MC five and the Stooges, you know, twenty eight years earlier or whatever. Which mm-hmm. again just really showcases our complete ignorance of the music industry at the time. Uh, <laughs> we just, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the truth is I, I didn't read the contract. I never read the contract. Mm. I just used it to make a make set with. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's how we ended up there. Like I said, it, you know, at the time it just seemed like you know, you, you know, the deal, like you, you have kind of like the big picture of what you imagine the future might hold, but really it's like a series of little small goals. And we just kind of, we just kind of had our heads down, like just constantly moving forward, constantly, you know, trying to, Oh, well, you know, first you try to you try to open for somebody cool that comes to town. And then, oh, well, then next you try to headline a show, you know, in town. Then you try to play out of town. Then you, you know, you just one, putting one foot in front of the other, you, you keep trying to accomplish all these littler goals. And, you know, signing a record deal, making a record, just kind of seemed like the next logical step. Although we really thought we were making our record with Nick on the eight track. Uh, and that's all that stuff that came out on that complete vendor session. This we, we thought that was our record. Hmm. In retrospect, I mean, there's some things about it that I like better than, you know, what we ended up making. And it probably sounds more like we really sounded, but it was pretty much just a, a live band with all the mistakes left in and then vocals overdubbed. That was like all in one day kind of thing. So what are your thoughts uh, specifically on that first record, Regretfully Yours? Um, obviously you had a, um, a a pretty good radio hit on it, um, but it sounds like you have some reservations about the, the record as a whole. What, how, do you, well, how, I, do you, how do you describe that now? I don't I really like the songs for the most part. Like I, I have no, I have no beef with the songs. I mean, they they were the best best songs we had at the time. And I really like most of the guitar sounds, and I really like the drum sounds specifically. Like if I was going to point to one thing that I really like about the record, I would say the drums sound awesome. And I think all the instruments, like all the performances, are you know we we played our very best. Um, again, it was pretty much the live band with maybe not as many overdubs as, as, it, as it sounds like. Uh, my big beef with it is the vocals hmm. because we went to Memphis to record. We did the vast majority of the work we did at E3 Studios over like a seven-day period. Well, dude had me singing with every take the band like all day every day for you know five days in a row which I mean you know we have been on the road a good bit and I was used to singing but not like that 
Um, so that by the time it was time to actually record the vocals, you know, the proper, like, super vocals, I just didn't have any voice left. But, you know, it, it was, like, half as good <laughs> as, it, as it should be. Uh, and, you know, being, we were so green, and that was, like, our first, real, really first experience in, like, a real proper recording studio. And we just did whatever he said. We didn't know we could say no, you know. Mm-hmm. So I did. Like, it never occurred to me to just say, no, I'm not going to sing for eight hours a day, yeah. five days, and then try to record the vocal, you know. Yeah. I would, I would laugh in somebody's face now if they asked me to do that. Right. Uh, yeah, so I kind of felt like you ruined it. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've always hated that record, and I would never listen to it on purpose. Huh? You know, there was a couple of songs that we got that I got to re-sing that are way better. You know, and then stuffed out was sort of an afterthought that was added at the last minute Uh, because it didn't, you know, it didn't exist yet when we when we commenced this report. So yeah, I mean, for the most part, I feel like it's, it's. to me, it sounds like some other dude singing. It doesn't even sound like me. Especially considering the song is the last one, or it's put on late. Um, it obviously, you know, gets some serious radio airplay. How did the band, how did you guys react to that? Man, we just thought it was weird. It was just such a weird time. Mm-hmm. Weird. Like, very suddenly, you know, we were kind of in this whole other universe uh, that we, re- you know, we really didn't know anything about and weren't really prepared for, which, you know, it was cool, and it, it was, I mean, don't get me wrong, like, we, we were stoked that the song did well, and we wanted to do well, like, mm-hmm. if we, you know, if we didn't want that shot, like, we would have just kept recording on four track and stayed at home, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so de- I definitely don't want to come across the wrong way, but you know, we, like I said, man, we we didn't have any music business experience whatsoever. The, the success of that song was good in some ways and bad in some ways. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's a tortured word, but like, it did well enough to like afford us certain opportunities on the next record that I'm that we're really fortunate. But it didn't really do well enough to where they would have no choice but to go come out guns blazing behind whatever we did next. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was kind of like this weird catch twenty two. They they kind of cut us loose and let us do whatever we wanted, you know, for the most part for the next record. But it was kind of dead in the water before it ever came out. Really, that record is. Uh... Uh, from a production standpoint, is is quite a bit uh, more ambitious. I would say, um, it sounds fantastic, um, and <laughs> "Bankrupt Vibration" is a song that, as I was revisiting everything, that really stood out to me.
Can you talk about, I mean, it's just such a unique song. I, I think it has sitar in it and it kind of starts off um, in one place, but then you get a, a little bit into it and it gets really pretty aggressive and heavy. And just the shifts in the song are amazing, but the the lyrics really stood out to me um, as being uh, noteworthy. Can you talk about the lyrics of that song a little bit and maybe uh, from the point of view of like where you were in, in that time and, and, and what you were thinking? Funny, that's probably one, it's probably one of the few things on that record that in hindsight, like, I wouldn't say like I take it back, but, I, you know, it, it sounds pretty precocious. Sounds like, mm-hmm somebody that really didn't know how good they had it. <laughs> like, you know what? The 40 year old me doesn't really want to hear anybody sing about how hard it is to play in the band. You know, mm-hmm. like, come on, dude. <laughs> it's yeah. not that bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know, man. You know, it's weird. It's just, the subject matter really is not that much different than sucked out in some ways. Although that was way more personal, I have much. That didn't, didn't really have much to do with the you know music business. It was more of a personal thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think it's a really cool sounding song. It has some some sounds in it that I really like. It has that uh, to me that kind of beatly thing with the acoustics going through the Leslie cabinet. Yep. You know, a certain era of their recordings, I think they tried to put everything through like the cabinet at one point or another. Uh, yeah, that was cool, man. I mean, I wouldn't take anything for the experience of getting to work at that studio with Jerry and have access to all the, you know, real Meltron and all those different kits and all those different instruments and all of Jerry's stuff, which... And just his collection of guitars and amps. I don't even, I rarely use anything of mine. He had this gold top, Les Paul C90s in it, like the Brian Jones Rock and Roll Circus, you know, gold top and a matchless. That's pretty much what I used on everything, almost. Yeah, Banker Vibration, I don't know. I mean, Probably not the probably not the really the way to ingratiate ourselves with music directors. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. My note was that it was you know the sister song to "Sucked Out" in terms of lyrically, but it's certainly a lot more, I guess, angry maybe or angsty, aggressive than than "Sucked Out." So uh, I didn't know if that reflected you know sort of where you guys were uh, with your attitude at the time and about the music business? Well, man, I, that was one of the ones that I wrote when we were up in Woodstock. Um, I mean, I was writing a song or two every day, like most, most of the time. Um, I don't know that it was particularly, you know, it wasn't really, I mean, I wouldn't say that was like such a huge part of my worldview at the time, but you know, it was just an, an idea that I had, and you know, the, the demo was actually really close to what we ended up with on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were—that was a—we had—we were having a lot of fun doing all that. 
Yeah, you can hear that come across on the record for sure. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a. I wouldn't say there was a lot. There wasn't a whole lot of negative energy. It was just mm-hmm. a lot of creativity, and you know, we were up there, just kind of snowed in, and had this killer spot. It used to be um, Todd Rundgren's practice space. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it, it had like thirty foot ceilings. It was just this huge room with like a, a kind of elevated platform that was up off the floor and I don't know if it was filled with sand or something or what it was but it sounded awesome in there it was a great room to play in and yeah I mean we you know we we were on a you know we were we had a street going riding wise and we showed up with you know half a dozen or so new songs already that were some of the some of the better ones from that album, you know. So yeah, I I definitely I mean, you know, there were there were dark times too and bad times too, but I don't I don't look back on that period. I really look back on it pretty fondly, I would say. You guys go you you leave Electra, is that the way that you would put it? Yeah, they I mean they finally turned us loose. They yeah. they they dropped us for failure to deliver an album in time and action that was the clause that we violated you know even though we had 30 something songs they just didn't like any of them so were any of these songs what ends up appearing on in the valley dying stars oh yeah yeah i mean wow it was all that it was all that stuff you know wow so for all those so so that's my favorite super drag record (laughs) and (laughs) I think it, for me, it marks um, that and Last Call for Vitriol. I always think of those two as uh, being um, a little bit of a shift in the terms of the sound of the band. I always thought of it being, it's a little drier and it's more riff oriented, I, I guess is the way I, I think about it. If you if you agree that there was a shift there, you know, what drove that? What, what were you guys, uh, what were you going for? You know, for first, the first thing that happened was Tom left. Because over that long period of time, you know, trying to get a third album made and trying to get them to, you know, turn us loose and let us finish the record. Like, at the same time, you know, all of the, uh, the you know, the, the way we lived, like, day to day, when there was no tour and no income that way, you know, was we put the publishing advances. That's how we you know, kept kept the band going without us having to get jobs and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, that was all kind of winding down without them, you know, without that third record kicking into gear. Um, but yeah, I think he just, you know, and, and the other thing was that Tom, like, he always wanted to be on, on the road playing. You know, sitting in Knoxville writing songs and not playing was a, a major bummer for, for him for a long for a long period. Um, so I think he just kind of felt like if he was going to have to struggle to do music, you know, it was going to be a, an uphill battle. He was going to it was going to be on his own behalf with his own material. And I mean, I always respected that. But you know, that obviously that was a that was a huge. Uh, shift, you know. Well, we ended up uh, 
you know, I ended up playing bass on probably about 75% of the record before Sam Powers joined. And, that, you know, honestly, that was a huge, like, shot in the arm. Because it, it was, it was, we were having a tough time there, you know. That, that was like make or break time. It's either time to pack it in or, you know, power through kind of thing. And uh, Sam showed up. I mean, he was stoked. The first practice, he showed up, nailed everything, played great, sang great. He's just a rad guy to hang out with, you know. And then we, I think we definitely turned the corner with that, you know. And there were some, some tours, not many, with where Brandon and Sam were in the band at the same time, including the one with the Sheila Divine, which was super fun. Oh, nice. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe, if anything, like, this stuff sounds a little bit more, like, defiant or something. I don't know. I mean, it probably had a lot to do with, you know, us getting shit on by Electra. But we felt like we had more to do and more to say, and we 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 backed the songs, you know, to the max, and we didn't change anything. And that's why I'm glad to hear you say that that's your favorite record because I mean I don't know if I could choose a favorite record, uh, you know, I could choose a least favorite, um, but yeah, you know, at a certain point it's like okay, well. This is our band. This is us. This is what we're doing. If you don't like it, don't put it out. And let us go, and we'll find somebody else to put it out. But unfortunately, you know, things sort of degenerated to a level that was less than cordial, I would say. And uh, after a certain point, I just didn't, I just didn't, I had like one last conversation on the phone with the A and R guy and that was the last time that was the last conversation I ever had with him and I, I told those dudes I'm like I'm I'm done. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep writing songs and you guys can deal with this idiot. I'm done. So were they trying to have too much creative input on on what you guys were doing? Is that the basic sum of it? It wasn't even that it wasn't even anything that helpful. Mm. It was like a lot of non-language that didn't make any sense to me. And they could never, he could never describe to me what he, what he wanted. All he could do was just tell me that nothing that I came forward with was approaching what he wanted. Mm. Like he would tell me stuff like it needed to be more emotionally direct. That was that was one of that was one of the catchphrases that I heard more than once. Mm. Now you've heard the songs. I mean, are do those seem emotionally indirect to you? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But I will say that um it's funny, we did a uh we did an episode on nineteen was it ninety five, Tim? Yeah. And one of the things that I, I think one of us remarked, I can't remember if it was me or somebody else, but just Music at that time and even after became ridiculously direct, like direct to the point of it lacked any metaphor whatsoever. It was just like, I'm in pain. <laughs> like, no, I don't, there's no double meaning there. Like I'm, you know, so it was like so obvious and uninteresting in that it was so direct. So maybe that's what he meant. 
but yeah, I don't find uh, any of the material uh, on in the Valley of Dying Stars to be. Um, I mean, you know, you know it's not direct not, enough. Uh, yeah, it's really not that obtuse. You know, <laughs> right, um, right. this is the guy though that was at the same time he was writing the Vitamin C album, which no disrespect to Vitamin C, but that stuff sounds like a Skittles commercial to me. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I'm don't ever expect that from me. You know, mm-hmm. like. At a certain point, it's like, hey, dude, you signed us. Like, you know. Mm. But I guess it's commonplace, you know, uh, that kind of, like, meddling. I mean, it's, it's, the story's just been run into the ground. You know, hundreds of bands have suffered the same fate or whatever, you know. And, yeah, I mean, it, like I said, man, looking back on it, I, I really took the took all of it a lot more personally than probably I should have because face it, I mean they they're about making money and they're about you know selling products and that's everything that they do is motivated by that you know sure to be I mean to be to be fair you know the the guy went on to have a lot of big successes with the, with and even in more more recent times, you know. He's not he's not gonna be sitting in anybody's cubicle anytime soon. So I mean yeah. he knows what he's doing. Uh we just our personalities just weren't very compatible, you know. Mm-hmm. I think he had a lot of people on in his roster that were a lot more cynical and were down to do whatever. You know, it's just to stay on you know, stay, maintain that, you know, buzz bin status or whatever, which that was never our goal. All, you know, all that happened and it was cool, but that was never our, our reason to exist, you know? Right. So, gotcha. Yeah. There was, there was no, there was no way we were going to change the lyrics to unprepared, you know, <laughs> in an attempt to please the, that dude. And even if we had, you know, our lives wouldn't be in degrees off from where they are today. We'd be, we'd be in the exact same position, but yet we would have to live down, you know. That, that'd be a lot. To me, that would be a lot to have to live that down. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's going to make some difference in terms of. I don't know what he was going for. A big radio hit or not is absurd. So, I mean, I just, I, I could never understand why Lighting the Way couldn't get get on the radio. Like, what, what's, I mean, to me, that's kind of a quintessential, uh, you know, example of what we did well. You know, especially at that time. Like, I don't know. There were certainly other records of that ilk that did well enough. You know. But whatever, man. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I could go on about the whole record. Uh, I could hear it on the radio. So, <laughs> uh, you know, keep it close to me. True believer. Give me animosity. I I, I think all of those songs. Um, I, I I think I, I'm I'm I guess I'm just shocked that Electra didn't see any potential in those. So, my son is playing harmonica in the background. In case you were wondering what that sound was. Awesome. <laughs> 
Well, man, these guys, these guys are nailing it. They, uh, yeah, it's the right way. Um, they have, they're, they're, I have, a, I have um, a drummer and a bass player. They're eight and ten. <laughs> and Sweet. I, dude, I showed them the movie Help one day, and they just kind of went off the deep end. And, like, now they can play four of the songs from the, from the film. No kidding. That's like awesome. We can actually go in there, you know, guitar, bass, and drums and play. And my, my older son, Paul, is actually singing and playing bass at the same time, which I don't know awesome. if I could do that. Wait. <laughs> right. You know, His name's Paul. He plays bass. They're doing, and he's, they're doing Beatles songs. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a John and a Ringo and a George? No, we don't have a Ringo. We have an Elijah. Okay. Right. Oh, there he goes. He's in there right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, we don't have a George. I think it may be too late. <laughs> I think it may not be too late for us to have a George. So the so you're saying Tim and I both have a I have a four year old. He has what a two year old. And, and half, I yeah. think we're, we're both trying to figure out, okay, how do we get them turned on to rock and roll? So the advice you're giving us is to let them watch help in the next couple of years. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we never, uh, we, ne- we never like, <laughs> oh man, I can't. I can't. If he's playing so loud, I can't concentrate. <laughs> hey, Elijah, dude, dude, you gotta stop. I can't, I can't hear. Please. It sounds awesome, but I'm trying to talk to these guys. Um, yeah, we never like. You know, they weren't being indoctrinated with Beatle music like in the crib. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people do that from yeah. from the get go. We never really did that. Uh, you know, we've always had a ton of instruments around and a ton of music around the records everywhere. And, um, but yeah, I just showed them movie help because I thought they would like it because it's kind of, you know, for kids. You know, it's kind of goofy and funny and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, dude, they just they, they, then they just started watching it every day and they sort of like memorizing the dialogue and started, you know, wanting to play the songs, and, but it, it kind of, you know, they have little guitars and drums and basses, basses and stuff, but like, for, for my older son, it kind of stoked that fire where he wants to practice all the time now, like he comes home from school, goes straight in there and starts practicing, hmm. and it just kind of reminds me of when I was 10, it, you know, it's a sim- similar situation. Once it, once it took root, you know, like yeah, all, all, you know, that's all you want to do is get better at it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, pretty, pretty cool time. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Watch that. We're still listening to a lot of Katy Perry here, so I'm hoping to turn the corner at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I got her turned on to a couple. She likes uh, Super Chunk for some reason, so there's a couple Super Chunk records that. Or songs that she likes. So, uh, oh, Super yeah. Drag is right around the corner. I'm going to get her hooked on a couple oh, Super okay. Drag songs. <laughs> yeah, I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting close. She'll start to want to sing along. And stuff. She You're sings right. Frozen repeatedly, the songs from Frozen. Yeah. And uh, that's about it. 
And you got to she... pepper in some rock here or there. Well, you know? oh, actually, you know what she likes? She likes, um, you know, I just started getting some vinyl because everything's been on CD for most of my life. And I got Exile on Main Street on vinyl. And she likes the first side of Exile on Main Street with rocks off and rip this joint. And she just dances around the basement like it's the most fun thing ever. So there you go. I got that little ear earwig or whatever in there going, working the, the Rolling Stones. So that's oh, fun. Man. Well, yeah, that's as far as like an opening, like one, two punch of an album. That, that was hard to beat, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask about Jay had brought up the, the two records that came out on Arena Rock. And I had a question about actually the last song on Last Call for Vitriol. I mentioned mm-hmm. this to Jay. I was texting back and forth with him during the week. Um, it's called Drag Me Closer to You. And when I heard that mm-hmm. song, I felt like I was listening to a classic 70s Kiss song, like something off of the really early records. Is is that a band that was an influence on you, especially those earlier, you know, pre-makeup off records, the stuff from the 70s? Yeah, it's got some uh, little twang. Some of the guitar yeah, stuff has a little bit of a southern thing. We were stoked on, uh, there was one whole tour, like we went down to Florida and back. Um, we actually went to Ronnie Grant's grave and forced some liquor out. Like, I mean, we were, we were definitely feeling it. But yeah, that, that is kind of a weird song. It doesn't sound like anything else we, we had, you know. It's kind of unique, and a lot of and a lot of people that when that record got hated on. I mean, I remember at the time that some of those things. 
put the you know the one song with the pedal steel on it. I hated that. Oh. <laughs> it was like the, you know it was, it was so offensive that we would you know and that we would put a pedal steel on our record. Uh, that's too bad. I thought it was a great yeah. like evolu- evolution of the band. I, I I didn't think that at all. I thought it was totally appropriate. I mean, you guys are from Tennessee. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, do we listen? We were listening. I mean, just to me, really, just reflects a lot of what we were listening to in the van. You know, yeah. I got, you know, we were listening to a bunch of George Jones and Little Haggard and you know, Flying Burrito Brothers and International Submarine Man and got stoked on. I'm, I just remember one tour in particular. Was like, man, I've got to buy a pedal steel rig when I, when I get home. It's got to happen. And then I got one, and of course, get, you go get one. You're making a record. Of course, you're going to put it on there. You know, right? So, whatever. I mean, can't please everybody. <laughs> we just we just always try to keep an open mind and always kind of put the approach like any idea is worth finishing. You know, and I still. I still feel that way. I mean, we have the record that we're working on right now. I mean, we have 30 songs in the thing. We're kind of all over the place. But, you know, any idea is worth finishing just to see what happens to it. And, Absolutely. You know, some, people, some people like it, some people don't, you know. can't get too tore up about that kind of thing. But, um you know, at the same time, you want, you want people to like it. <laughs> you you know, you work hard and try to, try to make it sound the best you can and play the best you can and sing the best you can, you know. So to connect the uh, super drag to uh, the Lisa memory, you, you had a couple other projects. You did some solo stuff and then you had a band called Epic Ditch. I guess um, specifically on this, like, the solo stuff, what made you, um, you know, take a break from super drag and want to do, do, a, you know, explicitly a John Davis record? Oh man, we were super burnt out with Chris. I mean, what, whether I did a solo record or not, we really needed to walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, my situation, you know, Specifically, like, like my whole life changed, and then I mean it had to, you know. I I mean I, I you know number one sobered up and cleaned up and found faith and there's just a lot going on, you know, with me apart from you know trying to make a record and go out and tour. You know, we obviously we did finish that one and we did go out and tour, but. You know, at a certain point, I, I've said this before, like, I started to feel like I was in a cover band, in my own band, you know, because mm. it was really difficult for me to relate to some of the old music, but also just kind of the whole scene that went with it, you know. I can remember one show in particular where, you know, it was a city where we, typically did really well and we always did well at this club and you know people showed up basically at load in and were there hanging out just getting hammered you know all day and night by the time we played they just remember like walking out on stage and i mean the first song like you know people were like spraying beers up in the air spraying them on us you know like 
And I mean, you know, they paid to get in and had a good time. I'm just like, man, I don't want to be, I just don't want to be like the ring leader of this, you know? Hmm. Uh, it just didn't jive with me as somebody that, you know, I don't want to say like, I, you know, I don't want to like over dramatize like what the situation was, but it was very dire with me, like health wise and just mm-hmm. mentally and emotionally and spiritually in every way, like the, you know, the drinking and the drugs, like the last thing I wanted to do was like jump in the middle of a big celebration of that, you know, um, and kind of like be the soundtrack to it. At least at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, years later when we kind of revisited all that stuff, I had a much different, you know, perspective in a few years to calm down, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, so whether there was a solo record after the fact or not, I mean, it was definitely a time for us to fall back, you know. Um, and we did that, and actually, my wife and I moved to Nashville, which we, you know, we've been here ever since. But even with the band, like we've kind of, you know, pulled the emergency break. The band was on hold. We didn't know what we were going to do or not do. But there were songs still coming, you know. And I ended up writing all this stuff. Well, if, I mean, if you've heard that first solo record of mine, I mean, it doesn't sound a thing like Super Drag for the most part. Maybe it's a couple, you know, there's a couple moments where it relates to it, but it's, there again, that, with that whole philosophy of, like, every idea is worth finishing, well, whatever just comes out naturally, you know, that's always where I try to go with the next, you know, record. Like, mm-hmm. um, Epic Dish was a little different, the, the concept came first in the song. <laughs> you know, that was kind of a, different, a whole different deal. But, yeah, so I, you know, I ended up with this style of new music. I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, couldn't, you know, it didn't feel, felt like it'd be disingenuous to, like, slap the word super drag on it just in hopes of selling more of it. I just thought that would be lame, you know. Um, and obviously, you know, it was very overt in its sort of gospel leanings, you know, and by the same token, like, I didn't want to try to trick somebody into buying it, um, having one set of expectations for it and then, you know, getting something completely other, you know. Um, but yeah, I just, I ended up kind of hooking up with, this guy, R.S. Field, who was kind of an acquaintance of mine that had produced some stuff that I really liked and produced a record that Don and I worked on. Uh, this dude named Scott Miller um, from Knoxville. And, he, you know, he was just into it, and he got me a little uh, demo session, and, you know, all these pieces just sort of fell into place for me to just kind of deal as a solo artist and make you know, make those two solar records. And, but we did, you know, and I, I still feel like, you know, either one of them, I really, in some ways I kind of feel like they, or I, I wish that they could have reached a lot more people. But I, I think, you know, they're both very different and both 
you know, cool for what they are. solo record I always wanted to um, do the one man band thing you know like I had been doing on four track for years but you know in a proper studio on two inch you know with killer engineer and you know my friend RS produced and we got to work at this place House of David on Music Row which isn't there anymore but it's awesome studio they had an old Trident console killer Oh, no, I'm sorry, API. Um, killer. Sounded good, and we did it all on, on two and 16 tracks. So you play everything on that record? Yeah. Yep. Except for the Bode strings. Like, those, we got one guy to come in and do the uh, arranged for like a 15 chair section. And then he went around and did them all himself. It was pretty awesome to watch. <laughs> like, he brought in, you know, three different, three different examples of each instrument kind of thing, a different character, and, uh, like three violins, three violas, you know, three cellos kind of thing, and kind of built up this string section that um, ended up on one of the songs, but uh, I did the rest. Well, actually, RS played percussion on a couple songs. What's funny about that is that record... It kind of reminds me of the Foo Fighters, whereas I don't think any of the other, other material does. And obviously the first Foo Fighters record is all is Dave Grohl on everything. So I don't know if that has something to do with it, just the process or, but even just the way you sing it, you know, your voice sounds different and just musically it sounds different. And uh, I guess that was the only comparison I could kind of come up with. So it's funny to hear that the process for those two uh, were similar. Well, I wondered, like, because the, the second the second solo record was actually recorded at 606, which is the Blue Fighters uh, studio. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But the, the, the first one, like the self-titled one, that was the one that we did here in Nashville. But the second one, um, that's the one that Nick produced, which, you know, he had been working with those dudes a ton and helped to design that studio was very you know instrumental in helping to make all that happen and he did a ton of work in there but that the second one was called Arigato I wonder if maybe that was maybe that's the one you're thinking of I'm thinking uh, of the one with the 
the the glass on the cover. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, we uh that there was a another dude that played all the drums on that, my friend Yogi. Um, okay. So he was, he was unbelievable. As far as the first record, the self titled one, where you played all the instruments, can you walk us through this is something that's always kind of been uh, not confusing, but I've never really understood. When you're doing everything, what's your starting point as far as do you do drums first and get the the structure of the song? Do you put down like a guitar track with it to a click, and that way you play the drums to that, which would seem sort of the opposite of way bands build from drums up. I'm curious how that process yeah. works when you have to actually do everything. It kind of depends on the song, really. Um, like, if you, if there are a lot of big diamonds uh, where the drums drop out kind of thing, like you got a lot of big holes that you have to count through, you almost have to have a quit. Or it kind of varies from song to song. Like, sometimes, especially here at, at the house, like on the four track, if I, if I know exactly what I'm doing, I'll just sit down and play the drum track without a quit and then overdub everything, which is the quickest way, which I always like. Kind of varies. But, I mean, there are other times I'll, you know, I'll print it, I'll print a click and maybe, like you said, a guitar or a piano or something and then overdub everything else. Um, I think we did it a few different ways on that studio record. But, yeah, that man, that was fun. It's hard, you know, four times as much work. As usual, right? But it was fun, and that was also the first time that I ever ended up with something to keep. Like you know, usually with the record budget, you know, maybe you you rent some stuff or whatever, but you never end up with anything to keep. But I got I I got to buy a drum kit, which I still have. So that was a huge win. Actually, bought it from that from the drummer from Low Straight Jacket. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. But mm-hmm. Yep. Those guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the kid I have used to be Jimmy Lester. So it's pretty cool. Super Drag eventually gets back together um, and makes Industry Giants. Um, I've, I've always felt like that. Well, now that I've heard the Lisa Memory record, I, I kind of feel like Industry Giants is almost not only is he getting back to some of the earlier sound of the band, which is a little bit, I guess, uh, noisier at times or just a a little less controlled, um, at least from a guitar standpoint. And I can almost hear like the transition, the the, the progression from industry giants into what you're doing now with, with Lee's of memory. Um, do do you kind of see it that way yourself? Well, yeah, I mean, a couple of those songs could easily be, on the Leeds record. Like that, yeah. that song Try is the one for sure that especially the demo version of it sounds a lot like I mean it's the same sampler and the same obviously, you know, same dude playing guitars, but mm-hmm. yeah, I could definitely I know I haven't really thought about that very much, but I could definitely see that. And what is yeah. uh is super drag still would you consider it still an active band? Is that why you're not using the name or can you talk a little bit about the decision to, uh, to have a new band name and, and where the super drag is now? 
it's a wrap. Like it's it's over. <laughs> okay. For sure. Okay. See now when I actually when I listened to Industry Giants and then um found the epic ditch stuff, I actually sort of saw the connection to that as well because uh, on the first track of the of Industry Giants, that's probably one of the more energetic um super drag songs. Yeah. And it kind of feels like heading towards that epic ditch sound of like the more I should say classic punk rock sound, which I kind of thought was a that was a pretty um, daring move. You know, I'm I'm almost the same age as you. I think I'm you're a couple of months older than me, and I can't imagine at the age of like 36 or 37 playing in a punk rock band um, just because I'd be physically exhausted after one song. Um, what what drove you to uh, to pursue that particular sound at that time? Man, really, um, as far as, let's see, industry giants-wise, like, you know, a lot of people probably don't, wouldn't necessarily take out of, of our earlier music, like, how much, like, we, I, to me, I always felt like we owed a huge debt to this for due. Like, we, we loved, you know, this for due, Dinosaur Jr., like, basically SST, you know, that was always, like, mm-hmm. part of the deal. Um, it didn't, it was never so overt, you know, in, in what we produced, but, um, you know, those, those Industry Giants songs, that was, that was a couple of years before we did Epic Ditch. But I would say, as far as Epic Ditch goes, really, it, it, it was kind of a byproduct of skateboarding. Because I all you know, I skated every day, like all day, every day for about seven years when I was younger. Um, then when I started playing in bands, I fell off. You know, like all that same energy and stoke was just kind of redirected into playing in bands. Uh, but you know, I always had a, a setup in the in the closet somewhere, kind of thing, and. Uh, yeah, I got really got stoked about 2007. I would say I set up a board in like 2005, but I didn't really commit, you know, to skate every day if I could. Um, but yeah, I think the whole thing that it did, it just was driven by this sort of impulse, like when you're, you know, when it's super early in the morning and you got this window to go to the park and you're like pounding coffee on the way there. So what record are you going to reach for and throw in to, like, get you just ready to land in the flat bottom and get back up and skate? Uh, and there's just certain ones like Nervous Breakdown, you know, or um, the, the Bad Brain, you know, Roar cassette, or... You know, there's this whole, I could make a, a long list of songs that just kind of have that effect, like, you know, just makes you super stoked from the, from the jump off, you know. So I think the goal with Epic Dish, like, the whole concept was to try to, to try to reach for that, <laughs> you know, and try to, like, make a whole band out of that. Okay. That's kind of what, what the, that was, like, the, the germ of the idea, you know. Gotta keep your head on straight 
the other the other awesome thing about it was getting to play with Stuart Pat, who is just a hero of mine. You know, like his his bands from back in the day are still my favorite ever Knoxville band, especially Ted Clemmer. That's that's definitely my number one favorite Knoxville band. So, and you know, Stuart has been a good friend really from that from that point in time until now like a lot of people don't know that red jazz master I have that I play all the time he painted that <laughs> mm. uh, and that was when I was just kind of like a fan of theirs and he started letting me like hang out at the tactic spot you know which for me is like the Chris Farley show you know <laughs> every, and in Epic Bits every time he played the song and saying it was on my side of the stage it was like Chris Farley show you know, <laughs> that was awesome. You know, like uh, so that was a that was a joy for me. And like the songs that he brought to it were awesome. Like I was just so stoked on everything that he brought to it, and actually getting to play in a band with Nick for the first time after working on music with him for twenty years, but never actually like playing in the same unit. You know. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've had a lot of fun. I and mean, we didn't play that many shows, but we put out four EPs and wrote a ton of stuff that we never actually recorded. And I don't, I don't know if we'll do any more. I mean, but we could, you know. <laughs> I'm but, surprised yeah, he was able to fit it in with all the production work that he does. Well, I, I mean, we ended up having to do a lot of them at the three piece. Like, I, I would jump on bank. He wasn't around. Which was, was rad in a way because really all I wanted to do was be the bass player. I started the band, like, I just wanted to play bass. Because sometimes I get tired of having to sing all the time. But it just it didn't work out that way. So that takes us up to the current band and record. We mentioned when we were reviewing Regretfully Yours that I think there were one or two tracks where we sort of heard a shoegaze influence i think um what was the song truest love has that like bend um the tremolo bend that would you hear in a you know some of the shoegaze um phaser for sure yeah was that when you were you know writing those songs back in um for regretfully yours was it a conscious thing to, you know, say, uh, you know, was were there influences like My Bloody Valentine and those sorts of bands, or was it more just doing something interesting with a guitar part rather than just playing a, a regular chord progression, or was that shoegaze influence always sort of present? Yeah, from from day one. I mean, we we love Loveless. I mean, we messed with it, you know. And, Loved Mezcal Head. It's another one that I, I can I would point to that we mm-hmm. played all the time. Yo I Tango Painful is another one that you know has some similarities just in terms of the you know, the jazz master. Those those tremolo systems just have a very specific they just do a very specific thing and it's easy to you know, pick out. Right. But yeah, I, I don't know, to me at least with the, the first batch of songs 
that we came up with for the, for the leaves, like, it's a lot of the same influences that we have, you know, 20, 20 years ago. Like, you know, we like I said, when we listen to MDV, you know, I think, you know, all the time, Stereo Lab, you know, Station 3, Spiritualized, like, it's, it, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like a love letter to all that stuff, you know? Um, mm-hmm kind of filtered through our our way of doing things. Because, you know, there, there are other songs on the Lee's Memory record, which I feel like sound a lot like Super Drag, you know, and I think of a song like Little Fallen Star or Not a Second More, some of those, like, they, to me, I don't know, if, if Super Drag has kind of a baseline, like, signature style, I guess it would be that, you know some total of the whole thing but I don't know that we we didn't really we didn't really set out to kind of be the the, the head of the sphere of some kind of she gaze uh, campaign you know <laughs> I mean I'm not going to deny that influence but I feel like um, the record's kind of diverse stylistically I feel like it it kind of covers a lot of different territory but there are definitely three or four songs that, you know, are, are, are kind of fully immersed in that style of guitar playing. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's tons of reverb and tons of synth and all that. I mean, it has more synth than anything else we've ever done ever, you know. Well, I think Mezcal Head is a good sort of parallel because that song, that album, it really is a rock record at the core it just has yeah. touches of, you know, some of that early, you know, Swerve Driver Ray's sound. But with that new drummer that they brought on, it just brought a new energy to the band. And it sort of diverges from being just a pure shoegaze record to something, which I think a lot of those bands, as they progressed, like Catherine Wheel is another one where they might have started out in shoegaze, but as they progressed through their career, they sort of sort of shed that sound and became more of a straight up rock band um yeah you mentioned uh not for a second more I actually highlighted that song because that to me is like the first time on the record where i go that sounds like a super drag riff or could be a super yeah. drag riff in that song but i wanted to highlight yeah. actually the, the end of the song because yeah. you do a little thing at the very end that it, it just changes for like the last, I don't know if it's like a measure or half a measure. And it does like this two note sort of back and forth thing, which sounds yeah. oh, really a lot like the two note lead in phaser off of yeah. the first super drag. <laughs> Is that intentional? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I'm not crazy. No, no, you nailed it. Is that like a little, like just like a, like a little, Easter egg you threw in there, like at the end of a, you know, a Marvel movie where they throw a little thing in there for people that are paying attention. Me being a smart ass. <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, we actually had some questions from some of our people on our Facebook page and our website, and wanted to get to to some of them um, with awesome. regards to Lee's. Um, Renee Rodriguez asked, "What's the most difficult Lee's?" song that you're playing live right now? Man, that's a good question. I would say, well, hmm, 
I have to think about that for a second. Um, probably the ones with the loops, just because it's difficult. We don't use in-ears, at least not yet. So it's hard to get all that stuff. It's hard to get the level right in the monitor to where you can hear it well enough, you know, to play to it, but not so overwhelming that you can't hear anything else. Mm. Um, so I don't know, maybe landslide, not as much, maybe because it's not quite as loud as some of the others, but I guess if I had to name one, I would say maybe Reenactor, just based on rehearsal so far. But it, I think we figured out a way, I think we figured out how we're going to do it. But, um, maybe that one. <laughs> okay. She also says uh, the album rolls and can't wait for um, LP2. Is that going to be this year that the second record is going to come out? Yes. Barring any unforeseen difficulties, we've got, like I said, we've got about 30 songs, and we're trying to zero in on about a maybe 14-song, 50 or so minutes. We're kind of going for a shorter record this time, but with more songs. Yeah. Gotcha. We had the last record, we ended up with a bunch of eight minute songs. You know, (laughs) this batch is a lot different, but uh, yeah, it's about halfway done, and I can't wait for it to come out. I think I'm more excited about this one even than I was about the first one. Is it because you're able to work with the full band on this one, as opposed to you and Brandon sort of working out the songs ahead of time, you know, as a duo on demos and stuff? Well, um, in some ways it's kind of similar just because, like, it's the three of us, like Brandon, myself, and Nick Slack, and we just kind of show up at the studio and work this stuff up uh, on the spot kind of thing. I mean, given there's a lot of independent studies, you know, with demos going back and forth, but um, I think it has more to do with just, I'm just really stoked about this batch of songs. Like, in some ways it relates to the first album, but in some ways it's completely different. And so it's even more, you know, the the first record to me covers a lot of territory, but I think this one is even more, like, sprawling. Kind of approaches a lot of different fields of music, and uh, I just I'm excited, and I hope people will like it. Cool. Well, let me ask in in terms of being able to release, you know, music on like Bandcamp and stuff like that. The songs that don't make the record would are those things that would still get recorded, or they just get abandoned at the songwriting stage? Well, I mean, I, I demo everything. So all the, even all the stuff that we don't revisit will be, will still exist like four tracks or, uh, and probably will end up on Bandcamp eventually. <laughs> okay. Uh, just because, man, I mean, we, our great desire would be, you know, just to post up with Nick and record 30 songs. But given his workload and schedule, like, that's just, it would take us five years to get that done. Yeah. Gotcha. So, 
know, maybe some of them end up on, you know, Lord willing, if there's a leave three, you know, maybe they'll end up on there or write 30 other ones and, you know, um, just end up on Bandcamp. Um, and then two of our uh, longtime listeners and commenters both asked the same question, which is when are we going to get um, a reissue of In the Valley of Dying Stars on vinyl? Oh, man. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, All right, man. then. <laughs> I don't want to let anybody down. Kind of a can of worms, you know? Is that a matter of just who's controlling the masters sort of thing? Um, no, I mean, we we own all that. Uh, the thing about that, though, is like the argument has been made, not necessarily by me, but that that already came out on vinyl, uh, which that is true. Uh, but still, that's, that's a cop-out. Like, that doesn't explain why it hasn't come out again. Um, I just don't know if I have the heart to get into it, to be honest. Gotcha. That's, that's, that's the real answer. I don't want to bum anybody out. I just, I'm just kind of, after that whole process of like doing those last couple of ones, I just, I'm just kind of done. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather put that energy into something that's going on now. Right. Do you face, I guess, not backlash, but just sort of questioning from people about, you know, accepting the new material, accepting a new band and the new identity? Um, or are people, for the most part, who, you know, identify as being super drag fans, are they pretty open to, you know, the name sort of being put to bed and, and this new phase of your songwriting and, and your, um, you know, being in a new band, even though it's some familiar faces, um, are people pretty accommodating with that? Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, the, the people that, the people that I hear from are, you know, and the people that I sort of interacted with, uh, you know, what, I mean, what we found out a few years ago is like super drag had a lot more, it was worth a lot more to people as kind of a throwback, you know, when we were playing those first couple of reunion tours we did, like, we focused on the, you know, the, that, the first and second record and everything prior to that, you know, and what we found out was that it was worth a lot more to people in that context than it was, you know, as a little later as for, you know, middle-aged dudes like trying to do new music and move it forward, you know. And I think ultimately that was kind of really when I started to lose interest. And uh, just because I don't, I don't ever want to end up like on that, you know, such and such a band plays X album from start to finish. Like, tour I'll, I'll never do that mm. um you know hats off to anybody doing doing what they want to do with their music and you know they don't care about my opinion anyway but i'm just uh i just don't have time to 
I only have, you know, a certain bandwidth for rocking, you know, like between, you know, work and family and all these other things. Like, I just don't want to devote the time I have to some kind of like nostalgia, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know it has its place, it has its value, but just what, you know, what's, what's done is done. And I feel like, you know, I, and I know that there are probably more people out there that would rather see, you know, the, the head trip in every key tour than Brandon up there, you know, with, with different dudes playing a bunch of new songs. And I, I can respect that, you know, and I think, yeah. I can't uh, fault anybody for that, but, you know, you just got to do, you just got to do what you feel like, you know, I mean, rock and roll, about freedom, that's what it's for, and, you know, that's kind of a <clears throat> convoluted answer, but that's, that's the best I got. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. And it, and I know, in talking with Jay, we're both, you know, big fans and excited by the record. So we're looking forward to, you know, what's to come. Um, Jay, do you have anything else that you want to ask John? Because we've taken up a lot of his time. Oh, uh, no, I, I, I got to dive into the uh, super drag stuff that I was really into. And I think just in a lot of ways, um, you know, for folks who, I guess this would be my last question. If folks only know you from Sucked Out, what is the next thing that you would want them to hear to kind of, you know, maybe complete the picture of who you are, or really show, you know, what you're about or what you're most proud of? Oh, man. <laughs> is it Lee's? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably, you know, Record that's out now, you know, the one that's about to come out, or the you know, song we haven't written yet. (laughs) Right. It's got, you know, it's got to be. I'm pretty stoked on just the the body of of work, like from you know over the last twenty years. You know, it hasn't necessarily been like a landmark achievement, you know, professionally or commercially or whatever, but you know, I mean, that's our, that's our life's work, pretty much. Like, it's cool to, you know, to continue to add to it, you know, as long as it... <clears throat> I kind of feel like the records are still getting better. I hope. So, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I mean, that's a, that's a hard question. Way to go, Jay. The hard questions. <laughs> that's why we're here. That's the hard question. Uh well, yeah, I mean, it, it would be hard to point to one song that kind of completes the circuit, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, listeners of this podcast, you maybe would say, oh, they were that one-hit wonder band, right? There, I'm yeah. sure there's some people that might think of it that way and have missed the the later era of super drag and aren't aware of your solo career and don't know what you're doing now. I think uh, if they went and listened to that, uh, you know, the last Lisa, rec- uh, Lisa memory record, they're going to be blown away. The difference between sucked out and that, and while they might, re- you know, recognize the voice and maybe even some of the sensibilities when it comes to melody, um, 
you know, it's a whole other, you know, dimension and direction. And um, I think it's cool in terms of you said you're, you know, you think of it as a body of work and that you can definitely tell, you know, when John Davis is involved in terms of uh, there's a certain style there, but you're right. There's a, there's a range there that's pretty impressive from, from punk all the way to shoegaze and everything in between. So uh, I guess my point is for those people who just think of, you know, super drag as the one hit wonder band, you're missing a whole universe yeah. of work that, that he's done. So dig well, in somewhere. I, I mean, I think uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword because there's a lot of inherent risk in that kind of methodology of just following inspiration, like wherever it leads, you know, mm-hmm. but what, what in what you end up with is, yeah, I mean, it definitely goes from A to B, you know, all, all points in between, like, it's kind of a winding road, but, like, it's pretty cool to, you know, it shows, it, you do end up showing, you know, your, your depth as a, mm-hmm. as a writer and a, and a player and singer and whatever, you know. Um, and plus, I think it's just a reflection of like a lifetime of just being obsessed with practically every single kind of music. You know, mm-hmm. I mean that's I think that's just what that's the end result. You know, trying to I mean certain things you just can't assimilate. I mean like that six month period where all I did was listen to Coltrane. Like I've never played a saxophone in my life. Mm. <laughs> uh, right. but, you know, just try to the way of processing like a lifetime of just obsessive listening, you know, and what that information, what the effect that that information has on what you create. And uh, although I did try my hand at reggae a couple of times. I just <laughs> tweeted about that today. Uh, yeah. On uh, uh, what song was it on uh, Industry Giants? Where you have a little reggae break in there? Yeah, man. I said, uh, basically, my tweet was uh, the the Clash and and this song are the only two times a rock band has taken a, a step into reggae and pulled it off. Um, oh man, well that's a, that's a <laughs> huge compliment. Wait, what about Rush? Well, somebody threw in uh, threw in the Police, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, this guy they they had it they had it down. Yeah, they yeah they basically made a whole band out of it. But uh, yeah, that was uh, something I forgot that happened on that record when I was revisiting the catalog, and it really stood out to me as very very cool. Like you just you just did it enough um, so that it gives some variety and it's a bit of a surprise in the song, but not so much to where you're like, oh boy, you know, <laughs> where, where are they going? It's it's a really right, cool no, uh, idea. No fake in Jamaican though. Like, you gotta drop <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, isn't that like that's one huge factor of why the clash is so memorable that nothing's off limits, you know? Yeah. You know? And they always had a reggae influence, but like they they tried everything, mm-hmm. you know? every idea, like they they went for it, and you know, it's, it's, it's like a record like Sandinista, it's like a huge risk, but. You know, the payoff is pretty huge. So not to, not to compare us to the you know, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting that. Yep. 
Well, I, we're just hitting the two-hour mark, so we should end on reggae because that's the logical stopping point <laughs> for, for this interview. <laughs> we need to thank John for giving up so much of his uh, Sunday evening um, and tell everybody to go to... Uh, best place to go check out Lisa, I guess, would be the Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Lisa Memory. And then also um, there's the Bandcamp where you can uh, listen to um, the single and download the single um, that came out yeah, before the record. Also, and then, also uh, there's um, Fidel and Dummy made a whole like YouTube playlist and people yep. can stream the whole record. I know that it's not the best sound, but you can head there sample it and then go buy it over at uh, side one either on cd or vinyl um so john thank you so much for your time this evening and um how letting us dig into all our weird questions about various songs um we oh, really man. appreciate I, it I, i'm psyched thanks for having me um, and we want to remind everybody that uh, you can head on over to our iTunes page for um, leave, to leave us some positive feedback and hit us up at digmeoutpodcast.com to request a review on our request a review page. Uh, that's it. Episode 215 is in the books. We are out and we'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.